Without further ado, our two hosts. My wife has left me. Welcome, welcome, everyone, to another episode of Director Peace Theater, where your two favorite directors from the website, which must not be named, uh, meet to talk about your favorite movies and the artistry of crafting said movies. I am one of your directors, Adam Ganser, and with me is my favorite co-host, Abe, continually <laughs> doing his bit that he always has done, and now it's canon. Um, it's Abe Epperson. I'm 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 also a director. <laughs> nice re- to meet you. <laughs> refusing to cooperate with my segues, <laughs> just just pivoting right off the rails right away. I love it. Yes. Classic, classic. That's why we're your favorites. That's why you. Because <laughs> he's on point, and I'm a dick. <laughs> All right. All I just, right. I just like this. Uh, I like this bit of being favorites. I'm going to keep bringing that up. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Keep bringing it up, Dan. Yeah. So I happen to have seen quite a few movies this weekend. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I wonder how it will influence our our conversation today, because many of them are actually uh, period pieces. I watched several yeah. period pieces today, uh, but this is your episode with your theory, so do you want to introduce it? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the title is going to exactly be, but my argument is basically this. Uh, the 2001 film A Knight's Tale. <laughs> I love it already. <laughs> so Starring already. Heath Ledger. Yeah. Uh, is an anachronistic film that just means a story that is being told uh, that takes old timey stuff, like I'd take anything, like a, a scene, dialogue, clothes, <clears throat> etc., and it updates it to modern sensibilities. Now, there's been a lot of anachronistic films, and my it's less of a theory and more of an opinion, but I want to explain why and feel like I've brought some research that if you follow me, you might agree for or sure. Open up a dialogue is that A Knight's Tale is the best anachronistic film. I love film. it. I love it so hard. I love it. This and I want to explain why. All right. Yeah. So can I briefly just point out, I just want to make one grad school point. Do you mind if I make a sure. grad school point? Sure. So I think it's fair to say if the audience is uh, already sort of like, well, if, they, if they're already dubious, all films are to some degree anachronistic because it's impossible to make a movie that doesn't, that isn't influenced by the time in which you make it, right? Like, I think you would agree with that, right? Just philosophically. Yeah, yeah, just like how, like, right now right. is anachronistic to right now. Mm-hmm. No, know, that's like true. I said it a little bit later. So the moment of the later, you know what I'm saying. Of course. Like, whenever we make <laughs> time a Time is a forward pro- <laughs> march. <laughs> it's a flat circle and meaningless. No, but yes. so, like... Uh, <laughs> But so, like, for instance, you know, last year, the best picture of the year was Green Book, which, in my opinion, not a great movie. But I think one of the reasons why that movie sort of, you know, uh, ascended to the heights of Oscar is because it's because it was an easy way to talk about race problems uh, that we're interested in in this culture right now, but in a safer context. And it clearly needed to be back in the past because they don't want to make crash you know what i mean like yeah so and i'm yeah. not trying to get us off topic i'm just saying like so no, no, no. it's well said when it's you well said. when you say anachronistic you mean this is a movie that's intentionally rendering the past as though it's through the lens of the present and not doing it incidentally because we live in the time we do yeah and uh it's if you watch it or have seen it before it's pretty obvious but i'll explain mm-hmm. what maneuvers it does and why it does them 
Um, Beautiful. And this, the argument is this is the best one. Yeah. I so the it. ones that I mean are like usually if you've seen theater, especially smaller theaters or high school theaters, you get an anachronistic plays because it's easy to do. Right. Like for example, like imagine death of the sa- death of a salesman, but like Willie Loman is like a V blogger or something. Like that's an anachronistic theater. Sure. Uh, you know, version of it. Sure. Uh, and my argument is they're never amazing. Like once you get over the hump of yeah. These themes are still true. You you have the source work, so now it's just like kind of a bizarre play without like updated speech, or it's like outdated speech in a weirdly modern setting. Right. It's it, one or the others. It's trying to please two masters and yeah. ultimately doing neither one. So right. if you know what I'm talking about, where it's just kind of trying to like really heavily update the tale. That leaves us only with a few anachronistic films that really have been made. And, like, there's a bunch more, I'm sure, that I'm missing. But, like, can you name anachronistic films that you actually enjoyed? A list that I have, like, Romeo plus Juliet. Right. Moulin Rouge, kind of. Right. Mar- uh, Marie Antoinette, definitely. Jesus Christ, Superstar, definitely. Richard III. Uh, Which, in a lot of Shakespeare plays have been done anachronistically. That's like, just because like, they're such well-known plays, yeah, totally. well-taught plays. That, totally, you know, it's pretty easy for people to go like, "Oh yeah, I remember." Yeah, uh, that from high school or whatever. They're all just winks to well-taught works that just skin it in usually mu- musical or like a modern-day tragedy. Those are usually what we see. That's so, like the lion's share of it, right? So would you, yeah, totally. Would you include Shakespeare in Love? Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think so. I think so. I think it's a little bit sliding into the green book territory because it's more about yeah. the thematic resonance of gender politics. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> and so it's more of like our point of view from the future looking at an older time. But sure. there are still like ways in which they talk. Uh, we see people kind of dealing with the same problems. Um but it's still in that heightened speech, and it's not like there's a dance number uh, that is like you know like a Bowie song or something like totally. that. Totally, so. I, I feel like Baz Baz Luhrmann is sort of oh yeah uh, the the one who does this most consistently. Loves that shit. I didn't Loves see I didn't see Great Gatsby. Was it was it an anachronistic film? I also did not see Great Gatsby. Okay, not, I didn't see the point of it. And I'm not a but, fan of this <clears throat> book. Hot take. I know. Let us know. Maybe it's yeah, a good yeah. one. Uh, so obviously I haven't done all the research maybe Great Gatsby totally is ruinous to my Knight's Tale argument if you can't can't hear the scorn already in Abe's voice about this opinion you're going to render him fuck because if you watch this movie and you don't like just go oh chef's kiss immediately <laughs> then you are you have no soul and yeah. you just get you just get right out of town you, and, <laughs> you, you take your stuff you get in, in a car or something and you go out of town and you haven't uh, really seen a knight's tale if that's your reaction to Boz Lerman that's, that's your what take I'm yeah so uh just a little framing uh a knight's tale was directed by uh Brian Helgeland uh and I just want you to get everyone to know that I don't mean this I kind of do but this isn't meant to sway your opinion, but it's his first time directing. Yes. He's a writer, he's a screenwriter, and the films that he wrote include L.A. Confidential, Mystic River. Yeah, this list is crazy. Man on Fire. That's so many good movies for one writer. 
Like, I feel like yeah. people don't realize how rare it is to write that many good movies. Yeah, they're solid movies that have kind of... They've kind of stayed with us. They aren't necessarily all Oscar nods or like... Two of them are. You know those films, more right. or less. And they're also well, all at pretty... At least one of them. They're all pretty intense, too. So it's interesting. They're all pretty intense. It's interesting. And this his, is a comedy. Right. His directorial debut is this. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you haven't seen Knight's Tale, there's two big scenes that really do it, which is at the very beginning of the movie, there's... Uh, an intro sequence and it's shots of the crowd getting ready for a joust. There's a joust being held by like a local Lord uh, and a bunch of knights are getting ready for the joust. And it's over the opening credits with, you know, all everyone uh, being supers and titles on screen. Uh, while <clears throat> Queens, we will rock you is played. And the important part is, well, I mean, it's twofold. One, that's weird because these are medieval peasants. Right. But two, the peasants actually start singing the song. They actually start like hammering their fists, going boom, 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 to the drum beat, and start singing as the crowd, all the peasants singing "We Will Rock You." It's very silly. Then later in the film, there's another big scene that kind of shows a nod like this, which is there's a ballroom dance where they dance over David Bowie's golden years with a kind of funky dance that's like an awkward version of, I guess, a 2000 dance. I, I yeah. wasn't going to a lot of dance clubs in 2000. It's not, <laughs> it's not a dance that really ages well. Yeah, it doesn't but feel it, current. I'll just put it that it way. But it is a thing. So here's, <laughs> here's the thing. I'm not avoiding or disagreeing with the amount of cringe both these sing- sequences bring. But when I like look at something like Romeo plus Juliet... Uh, or a modern version of like a Shakespeare play in the theater, I don't really gain much joy from it. Yeah, like the combination doesn't bring me joy. Right. What I get, what I get is a sense of these story beats, these human wants, these needs are timeless, et cetera, et cetera. If the goal of the production is that these anachronistic retellings is to make me go, oh yeah, that's still happening today in 2019. Oh wow, then great. But for the most part, it's not too much of a stretch for me to think about that with just the source material anyway. I can watch a normal Richard the Third and go like, yeah, that's true. People with power, that fucking happens. Right. It's, it's happening today, you know. And so like, I don't know what it's adding. That, so that's interesting you say that because uh, I would say that both the scenes that you mentioned are evidence of this film not being pretentious. Like, so, yes. Baz Luhrmann, as a filmmaker uh, who does anachronism, there's a there's a pretentious quality to what he makes. And I, I know that sounds judgmental, but it is. Uh, whereas I feel like Knight's Tale is definitely not embarrassed at all about having peasants chant, We Will Rock You, or mm. a weird David Bowie dance. Like, just mm. doesn't feel like we need to apologize for this. Or render it cool. It's not done in a cool way, you know. Adam, that's very astute of you, right? You know, I because I, I find that uh, these grander, like, it's important to notice that, like, it's not about the, it's not about doing anachronism. It's about how you render these grander tales and fit them in with the mundane of the now. That is the like the s- sauce of my argument. It's about like. How do you take the mundane of now as, oppo- as opposed to the mundane of the past and make the grander tales? Because tales are always grand. They're always like an epic tragedy or something like that. How do you take that huge thing and make it feel like 
oh, that's like me right now. I like the common connection of modern football and ancient gladiators. I'm right. not alluding to any specific artwork, but we've all had that moment where we go like, oh, yeah, like football. Isn't football just like kind of like the ancient Roman gladiators? And we all know what that thought is. It's not a particularly complex thought. But the relevance of that thought is that one is just an updated version of another. I can see how crowds might clamor for the winners or hold flags or draw their heroes on paper like some kind of idolatry. Yeah. Or like kids, you know, going home and like making like baseball cards kind of stuff. Right. Or the face painting and like all, all that stuff. But it's not done with the kind of writing wink that it's like, remember, this is all a tale as old as time, right? That feels sterile and medicinal. Right. This is just a picture of people loving the fuck out of jousts. It's fun and it fits because jousts are not complex. Jousts are dumb and fun <laughs> and football. They are so kind of dumb. Keep keep your like arguments in fucking order. In other words, anachronism is kind of stupid. So you should use it stupidly. <laughs> Right. So yes, medieval penitents thrusting their arms on wooden posts to the tune of We Will Rock You is silly and awkward, but it does succeed in transporting me to the thought, oh yeah, these guys were like the Marvel superhero canon once upon the time. It's fun, and if you push through the cringe, it's unabashedly fun. Right. And that's I, it, probably a taste thing, but it's a thing. It's not a taste thing. I, I think you're absolutely right. Like A Knight's Tale is different, because I, I just watched this again this morning. Uh, for like literally the first time in 18 years, so it's been a very long time. Uh, the it's so like it's not trying to be Andy Warhol, right? Like I feel like Andy Warhol is a good example of an artist who's yeah. Yeah, sure. trying to use anachronism for the sake of commenting, right? Like I'm commenting mm -hmm. on this. That's what Baz Luhrmann's trying to do, and yeah. I don't think a Knight's I think a Knight's Tale is like, what if we just like we're like, hey, the rules don't matter as long as you understand emotionally how these people feel and we're willing to like sacrifice some of the ancient history of it for that purpose right i mean I, that's yeah, my fundamental yeah, exactly. takeaway from the movie anyway yeah i think it's to try to keep the theme alive to keep yes. the point of the story alive and to retell it in a way that is like a modern person can ingest it agreed that is to me the point of that's as far as anachronism can really go Oh, uh, and a lot of that is comedy. A lot of that is just fun and stupid jokes. Uh, and that's why anachronism is always played better for me in comedy. Yeah. Uh, that's why like Monty Python and things like the Holy Grail. Right. Hugely anachronistic. The very ending of Holy Grail is not only anachronistic, it's like meta narrative. And it also is essentially just trying to have fun with it it's not trying to say something larger sure that like jesus was bad or something like that it's just <laughs> trying to say <laughs> it's not trying to do something uh, crazy lofty with its, yeah, yeah, its yeah. thematic approach it's just trying to do it so that's the opening step of my argument because right. there's two parts of my statement one is that like a knight's tale is thoroughly anachronistic and here's my framing of why i think it's a good type of anachronism but now I have to convince you of why the movie is actually a good movie. Sure. Which is kind of more part and parcel of this podcast. Do you think that people think of Knight's Tale as a good movie? I don't think they think of... They might enjoy the movie, and that's the whole point. Right. But I think that sometimes we don't see the stitching of like a really well-embroidered like tapestry. Right. Because like the theme of the movie is to like 
can a man change his stars? That's a line yes. that's said it's, time and time again. And it's really that's and a really cool the, way to talk about it too. It, it's a it's a real easy typical heroes myth. It's a special boy. Yeah, he's not too special. He's not gonna kill dragons or anything. He's not magic. He just is going to be kind of the symbol of the lower class, kind of uprooting the like taking the wind out of the sails of the higher class. And they're doing it through this feudal system, which is knights and lords versus peasants. And they do it all the time. I'm going to start with the music, though, because I think that because the first two examples I gave were musical uh, aspects. Yes, you did. And I think that there's something interesting about both the choices that they did there. So obviously those two tracks, which I want to get back to a little bit later, but there's also a there's a boys are back in town by Thin Lizzy yes. at the parade of knights entering London Which for the final battle. I really liked that moment. I honestly yeah. thought that was really good, like a really good anachronism. It, the boys are back I, in town. I think I it's just so like that song anyway. But yeah. also, it's a, it's a meme song. It's it is, and it. But honestly, it felt a little like I feel like it did enrich the feeling of that moment. You know what yeah, I mean? like, yeah, exactly, because they all just had a scene talking about when the last time they came yeah, to London was. It, it was and a lot well. of them are like six months, two years, and then like Heath Ledger, uh, it, you know, William says, uh, 12 years, I haven't been back like my entire life, and everyone goes, oh shit. Right. And so it's this kind of bittersweet, unique thing for all of them. Like one of them, it's a homecoming, another it's like a reckoning, you know, it's like... There's a lot of mixed messages there in there, but then they still bring it back to the comedy and just it's like, oh, this is silly. So that's another one I just want to mention. The last one being the full, the first montage, uh, or the second montage of the film, but the first montage of uh, the first montage where William is learning to joust his yeah. lowrider, yeah, which is also great because, like, I, I don't know, yeah, because you <laughs> if like you it. Take the lyrics of, <laughs> well, if you take the lyrics of that track, it it's kind of about that, yeah, you know, it's, sure. Sure. It's true that they're both he's both low at that time. <laughs> and he's a writer. Wow. But that's All right. but that's not that's not the point of it. Just briefly, so would you say the director is using these songs because it's more precise as a tone setter? You know what I mean? Like like I think those so, songs are yeah. more precise than like say and score. I think it's I think it's to remind us that uh, like things like Game of Thrones are silly, even though Game of Thrones hasn't been <laughs> out for right. you know almost a decade. Although Robert uh, Baratheon is in this in this movie, although Mark Addy is in this. Yes, so there you I go. I was like, oh there my god, go. it, it was really yeah. great. Also, uh, 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 the Alan gal, Tudyk? yeah, and the gal from uh, Breaking Bad, who's uh, she, Lydia, Lydia from Breaking Bad, is in this movie. Is that Shannon Sassaman? No, no, she's uh, the the. Oh, I know who you're talking. The it's been a while blacksmith. since I've seen Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I, see I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Lydia. There's a lot of hidden powers. There, totally. There's a lot of really good people in this. Uh, Paul Bettany's in it he's, as Chaucer, which dude, we're gonna get to. He's so good. Uh, him yeah. and and I'm sorry, what's the name of the redheaded guy again? I, his name just blanked. Alan Tudyk. He is. Uh, his face is a national treasure. That he, man he, I mean, is a precious, precious it. thing. He is on fire he's, every single he time. He is crushing it in this movie so You know hard. that he's in, you know who he is in Wreck-It Ralph, don't you? I've seen Wreck-It Ralph. No, who is he? He's the king of candy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. I, I just, like, yeah. only, only movies could be a proper format for what he's great at. You know, he's just so good at it. Um, 
Briefly, I would just want to revisit the music one more time, if you don't mind. So, like, I have, yeah, yeah. Oh, you had more to say. Okay, so just briefly. Well, I want to say all of those those the reason I kind of just kind of went through each of them. Yeah. Is because I just want to. I, I started reading articles, uh, like about uh, the musical approach of the sound designers and the composers of the movie. Okay. And this one has another big one. Uh, the name of the composer and music, musical, or I believe he might be musical supervisor in this, is Carter Burwell, which might be if you listen to uh, the Coen Brothers Brothers podcast that we do, a uh, familiar name because between him and T-Bone Burnett, they both have done all the Coen Brothers music. Okay. I did, I Carter Burwell is also worked with a lot of different, uh, I think he's worked with Sam Mendes and stuff like that. He, like, he might actually have an Academy Award. Okay. And I want to read a little passage that he writes about uh, specifically the David Bowie track during the dance. Yeah, that's the one that uh, I find intriguing. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. And so he said something about it in an interview, which is, quote, it presented several challenges. First, the whole dance had been choreographed and filmed to an arbitrary tempo, which begins at a slow courtly pace and speeds up and up until Bowie's song kicks in. I had to match that tempo and the choreography after the fact and also find some credible path from a formal and restrained dance to a joyful 70s pop tune. We got Bowie's permission to pull tracks from his mas multi-track master so I could mix these into my arrangement, helping me to introduce his song before it really began. The end result is on, on either of the CDs in which they were released, but an excerpt. Oh, in other words, he's literally mixing modern music with old rhythm patterns right. in order to make it seem like both. Do not think for a second, just like in, I was talking about with the Wedding Singer episode of this podcast, do not think for a second that these people are not fucking going to work when they think about, like, what is the thematic resonance of this movie? What's the point of this movie? Well, let's try, we're trying to update something here. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, so how do I approach that? And his, his question is, well, they just shot a courtly dance. And I know I want to go to Bowie. Bowie's very fast. He has faster BPMs on a lot of his tracks, especially this track in particular. Mm. So how am I going to get them to do, like how am I going to get from one place to another? Well, he's going to approach it and find all the things in his toolkit in order to like basically synthesize. And there's a moment if you watch it where you can hear, this is just sounds that kind of kind of vaguely come from Golden Years. And then it's full on golden years, but you can actually hear like the eight seconds that Carter Burwell's at his best, where he's actually making the transition. And meanwhile, on screen, what we see is the dance is literally taking that transition as well. Right. It's very well done. It's, it is it is well done. That's accurate. Uh, what did you think about rendering the dance? Like, what do you think about choosing to do that particular dance anachronistically? Is it like, you think it's obligatory because of the conceit of the movie? Or like I think it's tongue in cheek about the conceit of the movie because I, I think it's about trying to throw a rebellious kind of argument into quote unquote the golden years right in the idea of what the past was. So I think it's actually supposed to be irreverent in saying like you know like how they used to dance in there like it's what William is doing literally in the movie, which right. is everyone's laughing at him because he doesn't know how to dance and they're like give us a dance of Gelderland, give us a dance of your people. And he's like, well, they're like, he's like, okay, they're foreign people, so I could probably get away with a lot. But he like does a few moves that he learned that are kind of like, and then starts making shit up. Right. And when he starts making shit up, in their court, that's nonsense because it's like, 
making up a sentence that doesn't have any words. It's like, I've never seen that before. That's stupid. And what he's doing is he's just kind of doing his own thing because he knows that they'll probably just listen eventually. And then it takes someone who has kind of the authority in the court, Shannon Sassman's character, Jocelyn, um, to kind of step in and go, you're like, yeah, yeah, I can see how this And legitimize him, right? She has to legitimize yeah. him to some degree. So I think that the song is ultimately trying to say, like, the golden years are kind of bullshit, or at least they're, like... um they're like more of a dream. They're more of a wonderful dream about how something can be and a style. But ultimately, like, we shouldn't stick to it. Right. It, it, can, it can die like everything else can die. Which is, I believe, what the song's about. Feel yeah. Free to no, no, no. I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I'm actually kind of forming a theory of my own right now uh, <laughs> because of what you're saying. That's really, that it, co- it corresponds with yours. Just last, I know you want to move on from the music. Uh, yeah. Do you think it's weird that they didn't have everybody sing "We Will"? We are the champions at the end. I thought that was a strange choice not to have everybody sing that at the end, because yeah, they do have uh, the song. I don't know. They have a weird cover of the song under credits, but it's like such an interesting dovetail, and it it's like the actual narrative journey of this guy. Why didn't they do that? Right? It's so obvious. Yeah, I think it's probably usually when something's so obvious. Like that, I my guess is that they probably wanted to, and they couldn't. But you think they didn't get the rights or they something? Because it's not like it didn't occur to them. Yeah, that they had like, to we could get the Queen song. Right. Well, and like <laughs> they it, just them. the bookends of it and the whole. It's like why didn't they do that? It's so obvious, uh, and it would have yeah. been awesome because that song is one of the greatest songs in rock history. Uh, right. Okay. Well, yeah. I guess we'll. I guess we will never know or never Google. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i don't that stuff is really hard to find online if yeah. people can find that online uh yeah oh a brief word on the costumes yeah. i think the costumes is doing the same exact thing that the music is doing even more so another, even more yeah so. which is another case of <clears throat> when a movie or crafts the craftsmanship behind a movie is like the idea and the vision of the film is being disseminated to the people who are just working on like sewing stuff yeah you know that they know what they're doing. So examples of that is that the costumes are very outdated, especially Shannon Sessaman's character, her entire ensemble. I think it's a really good fit because she comes from literally, she was a fashion model. Right. So putting her in like Gaga-esque loud wardrobes is like a direct comment to the timelessness of fashion in this specific way. Not only, it's not just that fashion not that all fashion works or this fashion works. It's not thumbs up, thumbs down. It's more that even back in the day, the celebrities and the lords and ladies of the time would be expected to wear new clothes every single outing or to dress to match with their dance partners. And we're still doing it today. So that's kind of a simple thing. Sure. It's just a nice fit. Um, oh. Another thing that happened is like the upside down Nike symbol yeah, yeah, that yeah, Kate yeah. serves as a mark. Are you people? Are, when I first watched that, I remember sitting in a room, it was like in college. And I remember someone going like, that is so stupid. That's just a Nike symbol. And I remember going like, yeah, that's the point. They're, they're sports. They're, this is a sports movie. Right. That's exactly she's what literally, it is. Cre- it's a joke literally saying, let's create Nike. Right. This, she's the first Nike. So I refuse to believe this is a mistake. And then you hit him with your own joust that you were just holding yeah. on to right in the eyes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so like ultimately when it comes out and it's like, uh, that with the costumes is what, like costumes and the music, and like you mentioned with like Shakespeare and love, 
the speech slips out as Elizabethan more often than not, but at times becomes updated. It's only a few times, and it's mostly done to take the wind out of the sails of the higher, more lofty speeches in the movies. Yes. Like the heightened speech, the gravitas. Yes. But usually it's said by characters of lower repute. And then I think this is ultimately just as the filmmakers are just wanting us to side with the everyman and women, i.e. the peasants' view of the system. That's exactly, yeah. To me, that's like really the point of the anachronism in general is that like yes. the, the all... It fits the theme. Yeah, the every time that we're coming from the point of view of somebody who's of lower class, we give them a modern sort of way of rendering that, whether it's clothes or music or yeah. whatever, so that we relate to their side and not to the side of the royals. Yeah, this year's best. But they're doing it well. This year's best movie is, arguably, is Parasite, which is exactly that message. Uh, and yeah, it's exactly. you know I think that it also never goes out of style. You know, like that's yeah. a timeless message in its own right. Anyway, I see what you're saying. So you're like a Night's Tale, Parasite. Eh, you know, they're both good. <laughs> yes, you got me right. Yeah, so just put it on my tombstone. Uh, you quoted me correctly. I want to kind of get through this quicker because it's yeah. less on point, but I just, this is just me like watching the film and going like as a director and just like editor and stuff. And I go like, ah, that's fucking good. Uh, but this is something that just gives another like notch in the belt, so to speak of like, oh, this is a good movie. Is that the, there's an indifference to the typical rules of act one and act three in this movie there, depending on how you, how you strictly define act one, act two, act three, which has been time and time again by like Sid Field's uh, screenplay. You know, uh, the guy who wrote blank check, Blake Snyder has saved the yeah, cat. Save there's the a cat. lot of these books that kind of say like on page 30, this happens. Right. Um, and, but there's more or less a basic consensus over what these act ones, twos and threes are now something since, um, high school, a lot of people who have taken some English classes, uh, are confused by is that you have act one and two and that's one story. Right. And as this like bell curve and like people can map out tragedy and comedy and draw a line in a graph and people have seen those YouTube videos. How does that rectify with like an act five system? Shakespeare wrote in five acts, right? right. How come he's doing one, two, three, four, five? Well, how is that different from three? Well, there's many different answers, but I'm going to go into things can be broken into both act one, two and three and five acts and why that's a perfect marriage in this movie of a type of morality play. In other words, it's trying to tell a tale more specifically to of its time, which would be done in the five act structure with the three act movie, oh, which is now. So it's revising a structure that would fit its time anachronistically yeah, is your baby. point. What a, it's a night's tale, what baby. A, you, you hero. What a point. I'm, I'm really so excited. So this is less about directing, yeah. but it's more about writing and structure. <laughs> so the first, and I just want to kind of, because I can do it with the whole movie, but that will be boring. I want to just take, I want to talk about efficiency in the first five minutes of a night's tale. Yeah, yeah. You know that William Thatcher, who's like a meager squire of Sir Ector, is great at sword fighting, but he's too low class to train in a joust. He finds his lord dead, puts on his armor and becomes him, and they win some tournament winnings. Roland and Watt, whose goal, they're the two pals, is to collect winnings to get back home just to eat a decent meal because they're just like, well, we have no job anymore because our guy's dead. And then they meet Chaucer, the writer, and in this tale, a compulsive gambler, is seen at first naked, becomes the group's promoter and PR. Yeah, hype man. So they're all rags-to-riches stories. This is done in 19 minutes total. But it's really all of the work that's done is really done in like five. It's it, because it's really like two thirds of the actual narrative of this movie, too. Right. Like the reason why when you go and you go, but it says nineteen minutes. That's true. But remember, you have two minutes for oh no, there's a dead per like our dude's dead, 
and putting on the armor. Two and a half for an anachronistic we will rock you intro right. that doesn't forward the story at all. It just kind of gives you a tone about it. Three minutes for the joust itself, which once again, that can just be like skipped ahead. Like I'm just trying to think like a screenwriter about like what moves the picture forward. And really what that does is it's just like you're enjoying the joust getting familiar with jousting it's all valuable it should be in there but ultimately all it does for the story is just say like here's what jousts are they want to joust and then the last is three and a half minutes where the gang gets paid determines that they can do this uh, as a job i.e fool the lords and ladies and steal their money because they're good at tournaments and then it ends with a two and a half minute montage where William trains to become Sir Ector in the joust. It's a low rider. And four more minutes of scene work where we're introduced into Chaucer. Right. The first four to six of the gang has been like assembled. Everyone has said what their wants are. Yeah. And we have gotten the conceit of the movie that they're going to heist lords and ladies. That is your act one conclusion. And it's interesting. It's it. interesting. Nineteen minutes. Yeah, it's crazy. It's interesting that they didn't start the movie with the scene where William is sort of given over to the Lord as a child, because mm -hmm. we do get that scene later, yeah. and it is it does a flashback, and it yeah. is sort of his character impetus. But I bet the filmmaker and writer feels like I don't want anything serious in the first tone. Here. Like I want it to be fun for like two-thirds of this movie before we get any real serious stuff, mm -hmm. right? Because that's an interesting choice, wouldn't you? If it was a dramatic movie, that's definitely the first scene of the movie, right? Yep, and uh, it's also a trick that in between like act, there's usually an act three or an act four, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. or depending on like in, um, I'm trying to think of the, oh, Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night is a perfect example of a five-act structure that has flashbacks or at least reveals of information that they kind of retcon or introduce later for the purpose. It's an old bag of tricks. Yeah. It's just the flashback idea, but it's one that just peppers into the character of the story where you go, Oh, I see how we all got here. You know, um, even though that information is already on the table, you can just take for granted. He's just here. He turned into a squire. Somehow we get the reason why he was a squire for the purpose of no purpose other than character development. Uh, usually because act four and act four and five, usually there's a reveal of some kind. They do that in this film too. Right. <laughs> so yeah. And that's, that is sort of uh, like more thespian, right? Like to have these like, or like sort of more of an ancient screenwriting way of doing things, and I guess screenwriting I'm putting that in like more like playwriting uh, to have yeah, those reveals I mean, later. In, sure, yeah, 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 because you can do things on screen that you can't do in play. Uh, that is true. Um, ultimately, I think this is as an act one. It's a big fuck you to the story structure. Uh, it doesn't really meld. Like if you, this was a tip and the reason why I say that is the, if this was a typical act one, where it's just trying to show a hero kind of rags to riches story and has a, and is also kind of a romantic comedy, you're going to also meet before act one is complete. The romance and adventure arc are the romance arc is already up top too. They're usually done simultaneously. Right. Usually in act uh, one for sure. Right. Yeah, so it gets right to adventure, and then it's like interrupted by the romance, and then you have these two through lines because she comes in later. In other words, it reminds me of Princess Bride. Oh, I love it. Which is the reverse because the Princess Bride just shows you a romance with no adventure, and then 
by happenstance, adventure starts occurring. Interesting. Do you see what I'm I saying? Do. So it's like, it's it's not trying to mingle things together. It's trying to usurp one thread. One thread takes over, and then another thread takes over, and then another thread takes over. It's kind of braiding the story as opposed to simultaneously running them in parallel. It it definitely, uh, and then they sometimes. Meet. It definitely doesn't feel like. Uh, it doesn't. The movie doesn't feel like it's on the clock ever. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't use yeah. time and like needing to run things parallel as a way of advancing time. It doesn't really do that much, right? Mm-hmm. Like how long mm-hmm. would you say this movie takes place over? How long? Like what period of time would you say? Well, st- yeah, from start to finish, uh, five months, maybe. Right? Like it, we have the whole time where he's just winning a bunch right. and um, the villain, right? Uh, is essentially like going off to war, maybe more than that. And what's interesting about that is typically when you're introducing things like paralleling, it's usually because you're, you're sort of like using time as like the, the thing that pushes the story forward. But this one kind of doesn't care about that. No, you know, again, which I also, I also think that kind of suggests a bit of anachronism, right? That it's it's not concerned with like, and then next May this is going to happen, and then in the spring there's this tournament, like none of that happens in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a small scene before the Paris tournament. I I love it where there's it's like an establishing shot, like oh well, welcome to Paris kind of thing, and it's a long shot of the Paris in the background, but in the foreground there's a priest giving a sermon about Peter abandoning Jesus. Yes, and he says once, I noticed that thrice, twice, thrice you'll deny me. A little bit later in Paris. <laughs> Uh, William, not once, not twice, but three times, denies the words and wisdom of his friends oh. to let himself be just, just, it's all, it's all just fucking run. Just fucking run is what they tell him. And he's like, no, I can't. I'm a knight. A knight doesn't run. And so he gets put in jail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's At like, tournament. I just thought it was like one of those things that like good movies do is that like. A short, a short throwaway transition scene has a thematic resonance to the. It's not the most perfect, but it's just something that, like, okay, the writers are thinking about, like, what can we do with this space? Well, it's interesting. Cause, yeah, there is a kind of rhythmic parallelism between those scenes. Because when I watched it, I, I did notice that scene. I was like, why do they feel like we needed to hear this 30 seconds of recounting that Bible story? And your mm-hmm. theory is that it's set up to contrast. Peter's betrayal with uh, William's not betrayal of his ideals. Yeah, it's the yeah exactly. Okay. Interesting. It's, it's it's the conversation between. It's it's where the uh, it's where the morality play kind of is is setting in and telling us you you hate the game but you kind of have to play the game. Sure. And their version of playing the game is to run. Because they know right. that they don't have the live power. to fight another day, and he refuses. He refuses to do. He like he's gonna play their game and die by their game because he believes so wholeheartedly in the idea, not of justice, but of like being honest. That he will not lie. He will not back down, uh, and that is a folly of his. Yeah, he's sort of. And a, of course, a... he then learns by just having as he's been in the stocks, you know. Uh, which is always where this was leading. Uh, we get the, uh, you know, the, king, the 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 prince, soon to be king, kind of c- steps in and goes, uh, "I, you're you're a knight now." Yeah. <laughs> and he just Deus Ex Machina is that, and uh, that's kind of cool. 
but ultimately it's like it's it's just another way he, in which he learns or in moral plays you just have someone do something emphatically like i will not learn and then they learn by the end of it and that's just what's happening interesting here. now i think the uh jesus and uh, peter uh abandonment thing we kind of learn by contextual reads and i haven't it's been a while since i read the bible <laughs> but i don't know when peter exactly learns his lesson about it's that it's after jesus is crucified Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, okay. that's so the night Jesus was arrested, pretty, and Peter's like, "I'll never deny you." And Jesus is like, "Yes, you will tonight." And and then, of course, yeah. it happens, right? I love a few uh, plants and payoffs that the movie does. Paul Bettany has a thing where he comes out and he says like a speech in like kind of a wrestling esque hype. Oh, uh, he's so good. Uh, and to the point that he and he gets all the peasants. He's like. He's like, lords, ladies, and everyone else, you know, like he's immediately uh, talking to the peasants, which is not something you typically do. By the end of the film, other announcers are like stealing his bit. Right. I like that. And too. they're trying to bring everyone down as equal because he's like a game changer. Also, that's great because that was kind of Chaucer's bag is to kind of like poke the fun out of the high class, elevate the low class kind of. Yeah, deals. he did um, even everyone out as a writer. That's what he's probably best known for. There's plant and payoffs of the lines, uh, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting, as well as you will look at me from the flat of your back. These are just typical, like, screenwriter tricks. They're nothing crazy interesting. It's just like, oh, it's nice, because you, like, turn it around on them. Um, yeah. So that's – there's there's a lot more I could unpack about this movie, but I see the uh, – you feel the eyes, the, the eyes of March. I feel the eyes of. I feel like the eyes of time. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of things that aren't the greatest in this movie. Uh, the gender discrimination, which are pointing out at at you know like back then it was backward and barbaric. Uh, so that's nice, I guess. It's not your typical "I am no man" kind of Lord of the Rings apostrophe. It's kind of woven into both male, uh, main female character arcs. They constantly are combating the status quo and ultimately get what they want due to their like diligence, seeing their oppressors at, at their heels kind of deal. So it's like it is a little bit more more woven into the fabric of the story. That said, it's not a very forward film. No, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't even pass the Bechtel test. Uh, Bechtel it does test not. If you're, I was looking for that. It's kind of not bad for 2001, but not good. It's, you know yeah, I mean? it, it was. It's in part and parcel of 2001 films, but doesn't go out of its way to be a piece of shit. Uh, especially because it's a it's a land it's a la like a minefield of these types of movies because you're portraying typical traditional Middle Ages gender roles kind of thing. Uh, I think you could say pretty reasonably that Jocelyn is the most anachronistic character in that movie, uh, but I don't think it's because she's woke. I think it's because they no. didn't other than other than being a foil slash love interest for William, she doesn't have a lot of uh purpose, like her agency. Like for instance, like what why has she had all these tournaments at all? You know what I mean? Like, like right. who is she? That's it's like a paradox right. kind of thing. Like you you're trying to be woke, but you're not you're still weird in the system. For example, there's one really bad version of this. Uh, the most damning line in the thing is Jocelyn literally walks in William's tent at one point. She asked him to do something and he did it. So she says, your prize, referring to herself. Right. So take, so 2001 is <laughs> just like most things in 2001. Uh, it's pretty much shitty. 
it's a little bit ahead of it because it's the, that bit with the your prize bit is immediately undercut in that like Hollywood tete-a-tete way where it's like undermined. Uh, but still, no. I mean, he has lines. William has the line when he's next to the villain, where he's defending Jocelyn as a human being, and the villain thinks of her as like essentially a trophy. I, I th- yeah, he's gonna put her on it. Yeah, mantle. I think just to just to make that counterpoint as clear as it could be, it's not horrible. This movie, it's it's not horrible because his response is she's not like she's not the target. She's the arrow, right? Which you go like, oh, cute, but then you also go like, I don't so know what that yeah. means. <laughs> like, okay, so you reversed some words, but you didn't so, mean anything by them? I don't know. Exactly. That's what I think I'm getting at, too, is it's 2000 woke in that it wants really bad. Right. <laughs> to, to, like, you know, fucking destroy the patriarchy, but it doesn't understand why <laughs> or how. I mean, I think it just, so, it, like, again, like a lot of, uh, like a lot of pop culture it's trying to say the values of its time to a- appeal to the people who are going to watch it. Uh, it's not really a think piece, right? Like I wouldn't call this a think piece. Like it's, no, it's, it's not a high <laughs> art statement about the nature of gender equality or anything. You know, it just is like yeah. we're not going to reinforce the medieval knights archetypes. We have to comment on them, so we're going to do that. Right. Right. I mean. Uh... A final note on the structure, uh, just because I said uh, I talked about it with Act One, doing the same thing with Act Four and Five, and Act uh, Four and Five of the Five Act structure. In other words, like kind of more or less Act Three uh, in modern telling of how stories are made uh, with the three act structure, um, because most adventure films uh, usually they rise up in uh, in Act. In Act Three, uh, usually the Act Three beginning with their struggle to right, rise all up. is lost. His and... rise up doesn't happen until the last like eight minutes of the film. Yeah, that's, that's about five to ten minutes later than most films. I would say that this movie is not really trying to do the typical structure for the vast majority of it because it just wants the fun. Like, this movie is very committed to, like, hey, this is fun, and then, like, at the end, he becomes an actual knight, because sure, and, uh, you know, and that's it. You know, like, like it's it's not trying to... Yeah, it it doesn't... It unabashedly is like, this is going to be fun. We want it to stay as fun as it can be. We're not going to encumber it with plot it doesn't need. So it doesn't. You know, uh, and there's many ways to even there's many ways to skin three X. There's many ways to skin five X even. But if you're looking at a very fairly traditional morality play with a hero involved, um, like a five X structure, you're going to look at five X being like one, the, the choice two the initial victory three, the hope of like an impossible future. Like we can keep this going and this is going to be perfect Four, the fall five, the rise. So when I say like the last his rise comes at the last like eight minutes, 10 minutes of the film the rebirth. What I really mean to say is that it's once again doing this five act thing. Oh, I see. It's kind it's of framing homage, the classic homage to play. its old classic structure. Exactly. That's interesting. Uh, it's still skinnable to three acts because it's got a lot more going than most things. But if you ever go and watch like one of the, go watch a morality play or even Shakespeare plays for the most part, like once the right, like once it happens, it's fucking over. 
they fuck it's they're done. And yeah. then he killed him. Yeah. And end of it. Usually like a guy walks out and says, and that's what happened, guys. <laughs> fucking did it. And here we go. And there's go home. the story. It's over. I hope you liked it. You know, it's like Farewell. it's fucking quick. Yeah. It's like they they do that shit because that's like the point. It's all waiting for the rise. And then they like play it out and it happens. And then he wins. And there's no like prolonging or gilding the lily where it like is and then they became queens and kings. Right. It doesn't at you all know, it's just address like they, he won the fucking tournament and everyone was like, Yeah, you did it, buddy. Right. It doesn't deal with like, so wait, does he get titles and lands because he's a knight now? Like does he is that a job now for him? Of course. But it doesn't right. matter. It's it's about the justice. Yeah, do they ever it's just yeah. a stupid. Does movie. him and Jocelyn ever get married? What what happens there? Yeah. Uh none of that gets answered at all. There's two quotes I really think also going back to the writing that I think are very good, very, very good. Just in terms of I want you to think about things that might be said in like a princess bride or something right. like that. One is Chaucer's talking about his two um, – I forget what the Chaucer book, but it's Canterbury Tales. And it's uh, – there's two – like there's two figures who are trying to get money from him throughout the film, and they're very clearly analogs to two of the tales in Canter uh, in Canterbury yes, Tales. Yes, obviously. I forget what they are. I, it's like the Tinker and or the, some shit. I, think, I want to say the but Miller's Tale, right? The Millers and the the Millers Tale. Yeah. yeah, and he talks about because they're very they're depicted like one's got pimples, one's got like weird like one's very fat, one's greasy. You know, it's like because Chaucer, and it's well known if you're taught in those like classes. There's clearly like. A, a well-known figure at the time that he was just like lampooning in that, in that. And so there's a line that, uh, Paul Bettany Astrosser says, which is, I will eviscerate you in fiction. Every pimple, every last character flaw. I was naked for a day. You will be naked for eternity. I just think that that is a slam dunk of like a fuck you. It is. Uh, Paul Bettany. It's pretty good. Crushes in this movie. It's pretty good. He just crushes. And also going back to the Canterbury Tales thing, the fact that they picked up on that and put it in the movie, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I, writing. So let me. Uh, so can I? Can I give you some film school feedback? Yeah, yeah. Are you Are you ready for that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was with you uh, for most of this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's, I'm, every time I'm going to use a film school <laughs> ism. Yeah, uh, I, I love was, what you did. About I loved. This. I was really following. You. I was with you. Uh, now, because I can't take it. I can't take anyone <laughs> to like. If I if I'm gonna yeah. be if I'm a filmmaker, I'm I I have this, like the thinnest skin. Yes. As all we time. all do. That is something you learn in film school. You have to. <laughs> you must have say grape that with thin your skin if you're going to go to film school. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, first of all, love this. Uh, I just want to go back to the main assertion here, which is that this is your favorite. I think is fair to say your favorite anachronistic movie, and because I want to, I think we've talked about why this is better than a Baz Luhrmann film. But what I'm uh -huh. curious about is like, what do you think about? It in comparison to uh, Princess Bride, which is also anachronistic, and Shakespeare mm -hmm. in Love. Would you agree that those are that those count? And it, how would you uh, distinguish it? Yeah, if your if your criticisms of A Knight's Tale aren't specific to the like, oh, it's really cringeworthy when they do the We Will Rock You bits, and there's no analog to that in Shakespeare in Love and P Princess Bride because there isn't. This is a lot more. Uh, shameless of a movie it doesn't give a fuck about what shame is it doesn't feel um, but ultimately i in the way i think you mean yes they are all acronistic yeah like so so okay so knight's tale is probably probably a response to shakespeare in love right it doesn't have to be but it probably is because shakespeare in love was made in like what 98 
So, and so, and just to like bring out the parallels for everybody, Shakespeare in Love has Bill Shakespeare in it. And it's the story of William Shakespeare falling in love with an actual person. And then that's the inspiration for Romeo and Juliet. And he's, I think it's fair to say, sort of a a wacky version of Shakespeare who's sort of a writer for money who gets inspired and then like they achieve more than they expected, et cetera, et cetera, right? So mm-hmm. in response, we have this Knight's Tale movie, which is talking about sort of the idealism in knighthood, like an ancient antiquities knighthood, right? Uh, and uses sort of the joust tournament and the sports movie metaphors, and then it renders Chaucer, right? And it seems very much like it's a response to Shakespeare because the ideas, like the premises are so obviously re- responsive. What do you think? Do you, would you agree no. with that? No, I think that yeah. that's fair. So yeah, I think so. so. The, the first challenge I have here is that I'm not sure everybody really knows what Chaucer wrote. Do you? Th- yeah, he's not yeah. as popular even in historical for sure. Know, uh, relevance. Right, and because of that, so we have Chaucer is no longer playing anything like the historical figure that he was. Instead, he's sort of grafted onto this tale to kind of put it in the put it in what you might call sort of a parable category. Like I would say, this movie is more like a parable in the way that Chaucer's Canterbury Tales are kind of parables, are all parables than it yeah. is sure. a narrative, like an alt-history narrative, the way that... Why else would it be called a knight's right. tale? And, and I think that's exactly... That's why Chaucer has to be in the movie, right? It's, yeah, because Chaucer... That's how he named his Yeah, chapters. and also yeah. because Chaucer was writing sort of a series of stories that are embodying various ideals and morals of the time. Right, like, and that's that's really the point of Canterbury Tales, and so this one is a slightly more simplistic narrative, I think, to fit yes. into those categories. Whereas Shakespeare in Love, it is anachronistic, but it's also a little bit more pretentious. How do you feel about it when you compare those two works? Does it feel like? Do you feel like Knight's Tale is at all inferior? Because I think that's what people would say. What do you think about that? I think people would say that, and I think it's because uh, most of the scenes are elevated by a serious look into mm-hmm. it. I think that there's a grittiness that comes along with like um, a lot of dramas right. because they want you to feel the drama in a way you should feel. Like there aren't any moments where you have to deal with like death in a crazy way in this right. movie or something there's like no that. There's no real hurt or, here like, in this movie. There's no stakes because things can be laughed at, you know? Um, therefore... And I think that that is, I personally find that kind of silly. Right. I think that, uh, I think audiences are intelligent enough to kind of do shifts of gear uh, in that way. I think a movie can be really funny in one moment and then make you cry in in the next. I don't think that Knight's Tale is that movie Uh, necessarily for everybody. I would say, so just to. I think it can tear people up. I think there's moments of resonance. Just to give, like, just to give you a little bit more credence to your theory, like, the father's story I found quite moving in this in this yeah. movie. Like I, I was surprised because I thought it was well yeah, for the most part this is popcorn, you know. Like, uh, but that was actually a very resonant story. Uh, 
Yeah, when he like tells his son, like, or when he tells his father, he's like, "I'm, I'm your son." That's what's going on, right? Right. Now. And he goes like, "Oh, did yes. you follow your he's feet so back happy. home, William?" Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Oh it's really God. Good. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of heartstrings being pulled. Yeah, uh, I think that Shakespeare in Love is trying to make more of a like. I'd have to rewatch that really to dissect it under this lens, but I do feel that what that movie mostly is doing is aside from the anachronism anachronism, it's really trying to take hold. It's not his story as much as it's Gwyneth Paltrow's story. See, and I, Thomas, I that's absolutely true. I mean, I think Gwyneth Paltrow's character is the most interesting in that movie. See, I think that these two movies are anachronistic for different purposes. So like Shakespeare in yeah. love, I think is anachronistic so that you don't take it, too seriously and by that I mean like so that you don't think this is attempting to be a biopic about how Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet like I think the anachronism distances it enough from that that people are like oh that's a fun idea whereas I think A Knight's Tale actually has a kind of populist social like a social moral reason to Mm -hmm. to use anachronism and that puts it again in in the Chaucer camp uh, and so, like, there's actually kind of a high art reason for a lot of the decisions that are made here. Uh, I, yeah, so I guess that's actually credence to your theory that, like, if you look down and, like, why is it made this way? Like, why did they decide to do anachronism? There's actually some really complicated, mm-hmm. intelligent reasons behind it that you would never think if you were just watching this ridiculous movie, right? Yeah. And I yeah. like that about I, I it. I think it's sticking to, th- I think the most important of it, or the simplest version I could find of navigating in that space, was just to say that it's it's not trying to make an elevated claim because of its silliness would get in the way of that. Right. And it knew what it was going to be, and it stuck to what it's good at. So stuff like Nike swooshes on battle on armor makes sense because you go like, ah, I see what you're doing. But it doesn't. It doesn't do much more than that. It doesn't make me go, "Oh God, the Nikes and the Nikes," right. you know. And it's like because of that, anachronism is always doomed to fail in that way. Or I've never seen a movie that like speeds it up and goes like, <clears throat> "Oh, in Richard the Third, even though it's a little bit, it's more modern day uh, when it was made." Like it isn't. Yeah, it's totally not weird that they're talking Shakespearean. It's totally right, not weird, right? You know, like no, exactly. of course it is. Of course it is. Exactly. I mean, and, and for that, I mean, also one of your favorite things ever, Deadwood, is a kind of anachronism because it's almost like a Shakespearean version of the Old West. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That's interesting. So, like, I, I just like I find the idea of like why would you do a movie this way? Like, I find that endlessly fascinating. Of course, as do you, because we're filmmakers. But. Mm-hmm. I'm still like trying to wrap my head around uh, whether I can like call it best. Like, why is this movie better? Yeah, best is uh, qualitative. Sure, like, in the end, this movie isn't uh, not. This isn't a movie for right, everyone. Right. Skeptics and film buffs who haven't seen the film, though, I'd say watch this movie with as much childlike eyes as you can. The reason that we all got into movies, and just let the simplistic fable take you in, and tell me you had it more fun in this. Or tell me you haven't had more fun in this than watching the last several adventure rom- like adventure romps of the last it, decade. It is because in the end, it's all about joy. And it's also it, it's it's, it's not cynical it. the way that like so we do see anachronistic movies now, 
right? But they're things like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter or like uh, Pride and Prejudice plus Zombies. I Frankenstein. Right, right. Those are anachronistic movies, but they're they're cynical, right? They're like, okay, so we're going to like take – like they don't care about the source material. I think they're trying to be yes, cool. Yes, they're trying man. to be cool. I mean, cynicism exactly. is a part of that because I think what you mean is that it's playing its Well, straight, you, know? Like you know what's funny is like looking at all these movies, with the exception of Princess Bride, I'm having a hard time coming up with another movie that did anachronistic time period stuff that wasn't – that was trying to use it in a heartfelt way and wasn't doing it either for jokes or for cool factor or for cred, you know, yeah. like that, this is kind of the only movie like that. Cause like even like 10,000 BC, right. Is that caveman movie that's, that's anachronistic. But I think like, but nobody's <laughs> taking that as in any way a commentary on the narrative structure or on the nature of yeah. chivalry or any of that stuff. Right. Maybe I'll update the title because, yeah, the more you convince me that Princess Bride is, it's not equally anachronistic no, as this not. movie, but it is got a hefty portion well, of it, it. And very few movies shine a light to Princess it, Bride. Of course. I'm not going to put this in the Princess Bride category, but I will say that it's much closer to the Princess Bride category than you but think. But also Princess Bride most has the quality of being a story within a story. So it's not just an anachronism. It's like a rendering of a fairy tale as being told, right? Like, isn't there a kid who's being read to? Yeah. So, like, that conceit. Isn't there a kid? Have you seen I, I have. It's just been, like, 20 years. Uh, you mean Fred oh, Savage that's right. it's Peter Fogg? I totally forgot that. You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I know. I'm a monster. I'm sorry. I'm a monster. It's fine. So, it's fine. But it's I great. think that conceit. It's, I love it. <laughs> I think the human conceit of this movie. No, I think the conceit of the of having it being read to a kid sort of eliminates the boldness of it being anachronistic because it's intended to be sort of rewritten and palatable for a child. Right? Yeah, it's a and it's yeah. not like this and is it's how a self-awareness right. of it. It also doesn't take place in like some version of Earth's history. You know, like it's a fairy tale that takes place no. in no time, essentially. Like yeah. you can't call never ending story an anachronistic. In my times. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. When I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you're exactly right. right. I think the self awareness level of Princess Bride sends that to the top because it can, it plays these wonderful, joyful little things of they like interrupt the story. At one point, there's a bit in Princess Bride where he goes, like, is this, is this story just about kissing yeah like, is it gonna end with a marriage and stuff like that and he's like well just keep listening just keep listening it's a good it's a good movie <laughs> and it's just like oh i don't want to do this and then by the end of it of course he's like then what happens right. then what happens? classic so it's like it's got this joyful little game that we make the kid buy in and see yeah 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 and exactly but it's still playing the joke of you know dealing with the framing device this movie does the same kind of thing not to the extent uh, I mean, definitely it's, it goes big. It has the, we will uh, rock you, but it also has the Chaucer aspect where it's like, he's kind of always through the movie telling things and spinning things in a certain way. And you get the feeling at a certain point that he is kind of the f screenwriter of the movie. Well, so the screenwriter, I mean, that's what's ha not has into. the guts to essentially name the Landys from with his last name. Right. Yeah. Which is, uh, Tells you tells yes. you what craft that the filmmaker thinks is 
his his favorite right. Gelderland Helgeland yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, but I do think Shakespeare in Love doesn't no. do that it's it's about Shakespeare yes. being in love we're telling a story about this guy he happened it's a anachronistic but like Shakespeare isn't writing the play Shakespeare in Love no it's it's not that and I I I think if nothing else it, you've made a pretty good case for like there are really lofty artistic reasons to render this time period and this movie this way that are not mm-hmm. pretentious and that are actually clever and enhance the experience. Like, I'm not sure that if you did this movie exactly as it would have been done in history, like if you made a real period piece, whether we would have felt anything like how we feel about William. You know what I mean? Like, he would have been a character that yeah. would have been a lot more distant and remote instead of being like, instantly recognizable and likable right oh and we try dude and the wrong people yes. try like we've tried this shit with yes. robin hood so yes, many times almost every robin hood movie does this yep. since a princess uh since of prince of thieves yep. then we had the 2010 uh ridley scott i want to say yeah was ridley it the one scott that was supposed version? to be sheriff of nottingham and then got reversed at the last minute yeah. yeah, because Russell Crowe. Yeah, and then uh, the the most modern one with the the what's his name, the Guy Ritchie guy. Well, I see, and I think Guy Ritchie is essentially being asked to do anachronistic movies now because he's he's like you know the pop culture f- filmmaker like that, but he doesn't. Yeah, but he doesn't have like high conceits. He just has like a what if they wear really fucking cool trench coats or something. You know what I mean? Like. Like there, no. there's not as there's not as what if it's like Robin Hood but they're in suits <laughs> right there's no like cool, yeah they're in right. suits and they have like you know the equivalent of cars and like flame arrows and stuff it it, yeah. it I just think that he's not trying to enhance the core themes as much with his anachronism which is a that's a lofty goal isn't it it's it is it's hard to do oh I have never tried I I uh, actually that's not true I made a it's, plumber western once. Uh, which which yeah, you you, you alone have I seen? Saw it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've seen it. It's very funny. It was the reason that I was like, "Hey, man, you should you should think about uh, being a crack a boy, crack, being a cracker." Yeah. No, that's yeah. So I I have done anachronism, but I, it is very hard to do, and you have like you're sort of out in the desert trying to figure out like, is this all gonna work or is it gonna be really stupid? You know, like that's the danger. Like, yeah. I'm sure that as a first time director, he must have been like terrified at various points in this movie. Like, God, is this going to be so dumb? This is, this is so going to be dumb. so dumb. Yeah. Uh, what's going to happen? You know? <clears throat> well, after years of directing comedy, right. I have always found that uh, what plays in the room may not play for everyone. I, yeah, and you have to live with that. Uh, and your sensibility is important. No one's really going to have a magic ball, magic, you know, like eight balls telling you what the answer is. But what you can do as a director and when you're trying to determine what's the funniest take, what's the funniest, what what joke are we going for? You trust the people who you know are funny. And if enough of those funny people and yourself laugh at it, it's probably funny. I think there's that. And so there's also if people are like around him telling him like you can, that's that's a very slow like that's a slow death to George Lucas, though, because then if like people you get surrounded by yes people because you're fucking George Lucas, then everyone goes, oh, 
Yes, George. See, and I kind of wonder if, like, see, this is just a personal experience thing, but, like, I feel like at this point in my career, I still always know when I'm being dishonest with myself about whether something is good or not. Do you know what I mean? When you have that little twinge in your heart that says, "Mm, this isn't that good, and you ignore it because you're like, no, the math says and people are telling me it's good. I feel like at some point, sort of like when you stop listening to your conscience, like it just goes away. You know, and then you really don't know mm-hmm. anymore if things are good or bad, and that's like one of my greatest fears. You know. Yeah. Uh, also, like, so can I just make one more observation about this movie, and we can wrap it up? So I really yeah. enjoyed the part of the movie that was the Jocelyn testing his love, which is oh yeah, that's it a is fun, like, it's series of montages. It's fun, and also like that's a thing that people do. Like, people sort of lay out little traps to see if the other person is serious in, like, dating and in romance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it isn't – it's not often rendered in movies. You know what I mean? Like, these, like, little games that we play to see, like, well, if they really like me, they'll do this. If they really care about me, they'll do that. And I just was like – it was a trope that I'm like, huh, I haven't seen that in a movie in a while. And I kind of miss it because that is still a thing, you know? Oh, yeah. And it's uh there's a there's a uh, two lines that do it uh, back to back uh, when Chaucer ta- talks to William after she says like I want you to lose every right. single one of these and then she says I want you to win now and that's like an impossible right task, and she's right? being terrible and he goes there she is the embodiment right. of your love your Venus and he's and he goes and how yeah. I hate her and then he puts on his helmet and he rides yeah. into fucking joust because it's talking about the impossible task of changing one's stars yep. right the overall theme of the movie being that ambition and hope ought to be unmovable but when life gets in the way uh, you don't you, like it feels insurmountable I mean and I think it's but you stick to your guns that's how you be, that, you know, you stick to trying that's to That's the lesson that he certainly w- learned all he the time. Wants to ta- he wants to believe, and then the second joke is that if you do that in a system that is not, you don't have any power, you're going to get put in jail and probably killed unless someone deus ex makes right, you a knife. exactly. And just one so, more thing on the testing. It does work it, out. It, so if, if you're going to make a movie about knights, and then you're going to have to have a damsel, and you're going to have to have the knight try to win the damsel over, right? Like, that that's a prerequisite for this topic. That's true, and usually they're just yeah, in a castle. right. And yeah. so in this case, it is a small, it is a slight inversion because the the female character recognizes that, like, part of what makes him great is also his biggest flaw, which is his ego, that he doesn't listen. Yeah. And so the test that she devises for him sort of flies in the face of that. And is what if my ego right? And that's the opposite of what you would see in most movies about knights. In most movies about knights, the test would be accomplish some great daring deed that requires courage. In this movie, it's like, no, no, your courage is basically ego, and you need to like set your ego aside if you want to win me over. And I thought there was at least something observant about that. It's not. I think that's actually that's really smart uh, to pick up because, like I said earlier, I I was like I don't exactly know what's wise about the, like I know it feels better than Jocelyn not being a target but being the arrow. But if you think of the ego as uh, the arrow, in other words, your wants and desires kind of thing, uh, hers, hers is the directional path that he must uh, take up. He must charge himself not with his own arrow but with hers. That's an interesting yeah. flip on the old, you know, sexist suspicion 
of uh <laughs> so you know it ain't perfect but at least there's some good ideas here right yeah exactly it's and it's a joyful that's the one it comes down to it i'd say people watch it if you didn't enjoy it what try to watch it again with these eyes and s- try to focus on how much good work is being done to try to make a tightly knit thing uh and try to get past the cringiness of it because i know it can be cringy and some for some people that just stops the movie for you but if you just kind of go like fuck it it's just they know they're being stupid they're not trying to make you go oh this is cool then it's a little less cringy right it's at least i like cringy like i it's certainly not it it doesn't the number one thing that people have said to me about why i again i feel like that's that's uh I, uh, this movie is very transparent to, to use an abism like it's not it's a trans mm-hmm. it's not pretentious it's very transparent it's not trying to beguile you or be clever at all it's like no we're just going to do it this way uh because it it makes the emotions of the story rise to the surface more easily than doing it as an actual period piece and like Look, we watch movies about robots and superheroes that wear leotards and stuff so like why is this a problem yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, get off your high horse, yeah. audience. That's offended by this. Like, get serious. You know? Yeah, I think we're doing a lot of work for like one guy. <laughs> in the, one, one guy in the comment yeah. section is like, "The oh, I'm gonna take these motherfuckers right. to task." Everyone else is yeah, like, yeah, "Sure." And there's the one movie. guy who's in film school with us. Right. It's like, hey, I wasn't really. It didn't work for me. You know? Uh, I I have a fair share of <laughs> stories from you from film school where that was true i would be like fun right and they'd be like yeah when i was 14 right like, <laughs> like you're 18 now so I, you know congratulations <laughs> on your wisdom get the fuck out of here <laughs> he's a giant boot kicks him out of the room yeah, yeah. let's all right let's sit down and watch your fucking movies then <laughs> and it's just uh, a person staring at camera for six minutes <laughs> what a yeah. horror show! There's nothing. There's nothing more stupid than uh, making us making people pay and already have like, oh shit, I'm 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 gonna be so poor. I'm gonna be so poor. <laughs> this everything depends on this. Put they're already agitated and egomaniacs. Put them all in a room and tell them to say the shit that they secretly wanted right. to say, uh, but don't feel like they've had a platform or that they've to earned say, the right to. And then just let them go hog yeah. wild. <laughs> that's that's aka film right. School. So you feel like every room in film school is basically a one way mirror, and there were a bunch of adults just watching, laughing their ass off at like the exercise. Yeah, and every time you laugh at someone, even though because you can't help yourself, you immediately get insecure because you're going like ah shit that's right. me though <laughs> they're right. me I, I'm, I'm doing the same, the same fool this doing. person is that I don't respect yeah. somehow and yet I don't yeah, learn lessons from that sometimes things can be hypocritical <laughs> I, I refuse yeah. to learn because I'm the special boy uh, yeah. maybe life is hypocrisy <laughs> and it doesn't mean anything uh, it's like you're jousting right in my right in my innermost thoughts my friend hey I like to think that just like this movie a, j- a lance is a blunt yeah. instrument, but a subtle right. nuance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, but just last thing. Why did the why did the villain yeah. sharpen the joust at the end? Like, why did he do that? Could you? Because he he hates that uh, William was getting all the attention. He hate his ego. His ego. He was too yeah, far was gone. A- his ego means he needs to win. He needs to win Jocelyn. He needs to win the jousting. He needs to be the best general. That in makes the armies. sense. But like. And this guy's a lowborn. Go fuck yourself, lowborn. That's what he represents. Everything awful. Of course, about of course, he does. That's a, that's of course <laughs> the answer. But my question also applies 
to like this character five seconds after he stabs this guy in an actual joust, what the hell is going to happen to him? Like they're not gonna they're not gonna be like, well, I understand because you wanted a thing and he didn't get it. I see why you're frustrated. They're gonna I, put his ass in the stocks. He's gonna yeah, die immediately after this, ju- right? I think he uh, he saw that the winds of time were changing and he's just like a rat yeah, in a cage. He's screaming he's into the void here, lashing yeah. out. I mean, it's a dumb idea, but like most villains, I mean, right? That's a this dumb is the idea. Equivalent of, uh, this is the equivalent of when Sean Young and Ace Ventura just decide, decided one last time to run after Ace Ventura and say, die, animal boy. Is that, that's what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> that's what this is? Yeah, uh, exactly. It's, there's no rhyme or reason. <laughs> there sure it. isn't. You can't, uh, hey, some people, can't, some, ty- some, some people can't change their stripes, no. but anyone can change their stars. <laughs> I've had it with you. That's it. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> that is it. So I won, right? How could you I not have? You're going to use catchphrases? Not any of the other stuff. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening to yeah. me. Of course. I, what a great Just, time I had. This is a bizarre. What a bizarre thing we've it, chosen it's a, We have a weird life and a weird fortune. Uh, just for the audience, if anybody's <laughs> interested, I'm going to make a separate recording of the first 15 lines of the Canterbury Tale in the original English because I was forced to learn that. <laughs> Uh, I was Hell forced to yeah. learn that in college, uh, and this is the last Hell time in my yeah. life it will ever apply. So look for that sometime. <laughs> I like and subscribe. <laughs> Hell uh, yeah. uh. All right, that's it. That's a, that's an that's, that's an episode. Uh, next time it will be yeah, you, it will. baby. You know what we'll be covering, and I'll get to just sit here and not know. What and the I'll fuck be I'm the doing. Miller's Tale. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what we're covering? Are you excited to hear? Uh, I'm gonna find you. You are. It's gonna be basic instinct. Get get ready. Oh shit. Get ready. Oh shit. (laughs) This is clear. Our movie choices are taking, are making very clear sand of what we want to talk about. I feel like at some point the audience is gonna start like, oh, I know what kind of movie we're gonna cover when it's an Abe. Yeah. I wonder who's talking. Right. Exactly. I totally agree with that. It's a hey. That might be a good thing. It might be like a gang thing. It might be like. Sure. But it also might be, so it might be a podcast, you know, a little something right. for everyone. Or it might be for no one. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. We're like chocolate and dark chocolate. Totally different flavors. Yeah. <laughs> totally different flavors. All right. I can't All right, wait, buddy. man. See Until you soon. then. <laughs>